The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. We have a very interesting discussion on tap for tonight. We're going to be talking with Len Caston. He's written a book. Where did the book go? Hold on. He's written a book called Dark Fleet, the, the Secret Nazi Space Program and the Battle for the Solar System. Uh, this is a very, very interesting book. Len outlines evidence and facts related to the idea that the Germans, the Nazis, did not necessarily lose World War II. In fact, what they did was they abandoned World War II. They allowed the distraction to continue uh, and and offered basically what would be considered a alternate uh, reality, if you will, whereby they thought by losing the war, quote unquote losing, that they would uh, provide cover for what their true intentions were, which was a um, dominance of the solar system, not just the planet, but the solar system. And Werner Braun, von Braun is a figure in all of this. The U.S. government is a figure in all of this. And an alien race is a big part of this. And that's what we're going to be talking with Len tonight. I'm really anxious to have this conversation with him because he's done a lot of work and a lot of research. And it's all presented here again in the book, Dark Fleet. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Len is our guest. Uh, we're talking to Len Caston. We're talking about his book, Dark Fleet, and we've got a lot to talk about tonight. I'm very excited to have Len with us. And uh, Len, thank you so much for being here. It's not surprising to me, however, that we had a little difficulty connecting. It seems like anytime we start talking about these types of issues, these things where there might be a little bit of a shadow government involved or some secret program that involves some type of alien connection, we seem to have some technical trouble. It's probably, it's probably not something that's unfamiliar to you either. Well, I've had it before, but last night I had a, a three-hour conversation by, by this best guy. <laughs> well, well, the good thing is we got you on. It doesn't matter. So we're anxious to have this conversation. Thanks for being here tonight. Let's start out by getting a sense of what we're going to be talking about. Dark Fleet, what is this book about? Well, you know, my last book, Alien World Order, uh, I did not complete what I wanted, what I wanted to com- communicate. And I realized then that I had to write one more book about this whole subject because I ended that book on Earth and did not go off into the solar system, and I realized that's what I had to do. That's why I wrote this book. Because it's really all about the solar system. Yeah, it, the whole it, problem is not limited, it's not limited to Earth at all. Yeah, and we're and we're of course talking about the fact that uh, we've we we've been kind of given an alternate version of history here in a way. Um, let's kind of jump into this. We were told that the uh, that Nazi Germany lost World War II at the end of the war. They were the they were the losers. But um, you actually present a very very different version of things. Yes, it wasn't it wasn't the Nazis that lost. It was Germany that lost, and really it was mainly Hitler that lost. And by that time, all of the scientists and all the people in the know in Germany were, were through with Hitler anyway. They didn't want to have anything further to do with him because they realized that he was, he was the problem. Uh, by 1943, they wanted, barely wanted to get rid of him. And, of course, the assassination attempt didn't occur until 1944. By that, right. by that time, most of, the high, most of the scientists and the business people and the aerospace people had already started moving to Antarctica, and they didn't want to have anything further to do with Hitler. Although Hitler did survive, and he did go to Argentina. So when we start talking about a Nazi space program, and we start talking about some of the things that they accomplished and the alliances they have, which we'll get into all of that, was Hitler part of that, or was it being done uh, without Hitler's knowledge? 
Well, Hitler just wasn't wasn't kept in the loop, basically, because uh, he didn't know anything about it and didn't want to learn anything about it. Yeah. He knew that uh, his scientists were top-notch, and uh, he thought that they could take care of everything. Uh, but he, he preferred to be playing general uh, and trying to be a general on the Eastern Front, which he really, which he really botched up, and they realized that at Stalingrad. Now, he, you know, he just didn't have the, the smarts for it, for the whole thing. And the scientists realized that, and the generals realized that, and that's why they tried to kill him in 1944, but they didn't succeed. But they, he did survive, and he did go to Argentina. However, they were already in Antarctica. Most of the top scientists, most of the top aerospace people, uh, they were already in Antarctica under two miles of ice. So uh, Adolf Hitler takes uh, control in Germany, we'll say 1933, um, and he spends a lot of years building up and gearing up for war. At what point does do these Nazi scientists and this Nazi subculture, for lack of a better way to describe it, start taking on what would be considered um, a separate path from what Hitler's ambitions may have been, uh, go to Antarctica, start these uh, programs that we'll get into that involve space exploration. At, at what point does that begin? It really began in 1938, a whole year before uh, they attacked Poland. It was one whole year prior to the, to the outbreak of World War II. So you see that they were already planning the Antarctic escape even at that point. Oh. And they sent their top scientists to Antarctica. Uh, you may have read that in my book about mm-hmm. the journey of the Schwabenland. Mm-hmm. Did you read that part of the book? Yes, absolutely. And, and But what you're saying here is that this effort to go to Antarctica and start and create a base there and then start to project into space was, you, you, you just used, words, used the word escape. That was the plan all along, knowing that, what, Hitler was going to actually um, suffer defeat because they recognized his ambition and his plans weren't realistic the way he wanted yeah, to pursue yeah, them? More, more or less. The top German scientists knew that already. Yeah. But uh, they knew he was kind of a madman, and they didn't want anything to do with him after that. After he got to Argentina, uh, they they basically abandoned him. Actually, the reptilians abandoned him earlier than that. They abandoned him in 1943. Uh, After the Allies landed on Anzio Beachhead, the uh, the reptilians realized that uh, he wasn't going to be of any use to them anymore, and they basically abandoned him. Up until that point, they had been in an alliance with the reptilians. When did the reptilians ally themselves with Nazi Germany? Was that prior, 19, to, prior to 1938? Yes, 1933. It was 1933. How, right. how, did, how did the reptilians decide to ally with Nazi Germany? What did they see in Nazi Germany that made them pick this Nazi regime to be their allies here on Earth? Well, I went into great detail about that in the early part of the book, describing uh, why they selected the Germans to start with, which they did. And uh, they had the kind of ruthless mentality that they wanted uh, for their allies. And they knew that uh, they would be the best ones to use in terms of starting the war, starting the war itself. But they knew that the war was not going to turn out right anyway. They knew that once... Once the United States geared up uh, their their, uh, their their industrial capacity, and Hitler had to fight a two front war, it would basically be useless. The whole thing would be useless. Was there something about German uh, engineering and technology that that attracted the reptilians, or was it the other way around? Was it the reptilians that provided the Germans with some of this advanced technology that we later learned they had in many cases, and that really gave them a technological advantage during uh, the war itself? Yes, the reptilians did did give them a lot of that technology, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if you've read my previous book, Alien World Order. I haven't read that. Have, no, I haven't. You may not have read that. Okay, in that in that book, I made a rather outrageous claim, and uh, I thought that people would view it as being outrageous. But actually, so many people agreed with it that I was very surprised. I took the position that most that after World War One, there wasn't very much left of the German army at all. Right. And what was left was a bunch of dispirited veterans and some raw recruits. 
And the reptilians knew that, and they made an arrangement with Hitler where they would create him, create an army for him. They would clone him an army off the planet, and that would become his new fighting force in 1933. And that army, that initial army, the Wehrmacht, was a cloned army. That was the claim I made in my book, and I was surprised at how many people, how many people <laughs> readily agreed with me because it became very clear. It became very clear because all they had, all they knew how to do was to obey orders. Yeah, and uh, they were like cyborgs. The German army was like cyborgs, and uh, the, the the reptilians knew that millions of soldiers would get chewed up in Russia anyway. Right. So they felt they could they could sort of just throw them throw them away. So when when we all learned about uh, Hitler's um, assertions in his book Mein Kampf, and of course we always hear you know the master race and the Aryan race and this this uh, this. Uh, effort by the Nazi party to purify was that a was that code for for cloning no the, the cloning was a decision by the by the reptilians they realized okay. that he would not have a chance without without a cloned army could he otherwise while the he had he did have the connection with the Krupp family which allowed him which gave him the armaments he needed and but the but the Krupps were fanatic fanatic monarchists and they were very happy to go along with that. But uh, really, they knew he needed a real army. They just didn't have one after World War One because right. as, a, as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, he was only permitted to have a, a, a whole military uh, of 100,000 men. That's right. I think that, was, that would have been Army, Navy, and Air Force. And that certainly wasn't, that certainly wasn't the case standing out there on the parade fields of Nuremberg in 1934. They were they were all bright and shiny recruits, brand new recruits. One hundred sixty thousand of them standing at attention on the parade fields of Nuremberg. Where did they come from? And you know, Hitler admitted it himself. By the way, in a, in a conversation he had with Bormann, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you haven't read my other book. I'll, let me explain that to you. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Martin Bormann did all the work for Hitler, the financial work, and getting all the people he needed in his. In his, uh, in his, in his fortress on top of the mountain, and he asked Borman to get him some some um, help to clean up the house and so forth, domestic help. And Borman was not able to get those people, so Hitler said to him, "I, I, 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 I produce an entire army for you, and you can't get me some domestic help." <laughs> and that he was re- he was referring to the army that he had more or less gotten from the reptilians. They had cloned an army for him. So were the was the Nazi leadership um, all uh, complicit and involved in this effort and this relationship with the reptilians, or was it limited to just maybe a few of the of the most noted ones? It was limited to his, to the basic officers surrounding him, mainly Himmler, okay. uh, Speer, uh, Bormann, Goebbels, and Goring, a few of the top people. Uh, the others really did not know about it. Is there any evidence that the United States government was aware of this while it was going on? Well, you know, there was a connection between the, mil- the, mil- the, uh, the, the business community in America and the Nazis, yes. Uh, there were some Nazi, some Nazi sympathizers in the business community, and there are several books out on, on that subject. Um, the American businessmen were very canny and very, very, very smart about making money, and they realized they had to uh, work with the German industrial in, industrial people in order to do that. And uh, Henry, Ford, Henry Ford was selling them trucks before the war broke out. Right. Even after the war broke out, the the American the American soldiers were startled to find that the enemy was driving Ford trucks. <laughs> um, Henry Ford's sympathies for the Nazis are pretty well legendary. Um, what, when the Nazis began this relationship with the reptilians in 1933, what did the reptilians promise them? Do we know? 
I'm sorry, say that again. The, the relationship between the, the reptilians and the Nazis. Obviously, the reptilians were looking for um, the Nazis to do something for them. But what were the Nazis expecting from the reptilians? What was promised to the Nazis by the reptilian race that uh, well, that that made them go along with this, this uh, alliance? Well, Hitler had every intention of uh, of ruling the world. He really he was already designing his 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 um, capital city with Albert Speer, the architect, and. Um, let me read to you what Albert Speer said in his book. Do you know who Albert Speer was? Yeah, by he the way? Was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was very instrumental in. Um, he was the architect. Did he also manage uh, uh, production, uh, manufacturing in the Nazi yes. regime? Yeah, mm-hmm. he was. He was Hitler's minister of armaments. That's right. Now here's what he said in his book Infiltration. Uh, let me read it to you here. This is very important because you know Speer was never really on board with a lot of Hitler's ideas about racial purity at all. And um, he went along with it, but he didn't realize that Heinrich Himmler had had Hitler's attention. And uh, it was Himmler who basically was Hitler's um, confidant, not Speer. So here's what Speer said in his book, Infiltration. Hold on just a minute. I have in chapter 15 of the book, I entitled it The Slave Trade. Did you read that chapter? Yep. Let me just read that that first uh, paragraph to you. This vision of a peacetime Reich was thus based on the existence of millions of permanent slaves who were neither political opponents nor so-called racial enemies. Because of economic necessity, they would be kept in camps all their lives with women in brothels. This empire of slaves which was to stretch all the way to the Urals, Ural Mountains, would be the basic energy source of a Europe that had to prepare to conquer the greatest enemy, the United States of America. And that was written to by Albert Speer, uh, speaking of Hitler's plans. So you see, uh, Hitler, Speer realized that Hitler was a, was a madman. He knew it, because he worked closely with him. But he didn't realize uh, how crazy Hitler really was. I think there are several uh, Nazis that got that, uh, figured that out along the way. Rudolf Hess, I think, was probably one of them as well. Yes, yes, Hess was one of them. So, well, all of the scientists and the uh, the businessmen knew they had to eventually, by 1943, they realized they had to get rid of Hitler. And that's when they started plotting the assassination, which didn't take, the assassination attempt didn't take place till early 1944. So in 1938... Um, some of these key Nazis uh, develop a plan, and they go to Antarctica and build a base there. What's the purpose of the base? Well, they did it at the behest of the reptilians. The reptilians were the ones who told them to do it, and they did it. Now, think about it. Uh, in 1938, that was a full year before the invasion of Poland. Yet they, they mounted this tremendous, uh, this, a tremendous expedition to the to the South Pole, crossing six thousand miles of the Atlantic, to a, a frozen wasteland that they really knew nothing about, and yet they took the top people, top scientists with them. Uh, they were completely they were completely ready for what awaited them there, and it didn't matter that they were about to they were about to mount a war against against Germany, against England and and France. Right. At that point. And they build the base at the behest of the reptilians, um, and that becomes a, a launching point and a, um, a facility by which they, they ultimately aim their sights at uh, the rest of the solar system. Exactly. And that was, the important, uh, that was what was important to them. That's what the reptilians and they had agreed to, that they would become partners with the Draco, with the reptilians, in invading the rest of the solar system and beyond. And it would be from that particular base, which they they named Base 211. And that became their launching point to the moon and Mars. And their top scientists were really already in Antarctica by the time the war was over. 
And we know that some of that technology has was used at the time to create things like you know the flying bombs, the the, the um, V one and and V two rockets that were menacing uh, England at the time. Um, exactly. And they call them wonder weapons. Yeah. Yeah, and we also know that the Allies encountered uh, airplanes, uh, the ME-262, ME-163, these other uh, jet and rocket aircraft that were unlike anything that the uh, Allies had seen or even had on their on their uh, drawing tables. That's right. And we had we had nowhere near the capabilities in rocketry that they had uh, with, with Von Braun and Dornberger uh, in Pina Munde. So... Uh, they were way ahead of us, way ahead of us. And they, are, they had already started developing the atom bomb. They were already mining uranium. They would have, they would have gotten there very soon if we, hadn't, if we hadn't beat them to it. When did so they, all of that information was coming to them from the, from the reptilians. When did they, when did they uh, the Nazis, with the assistance of the reptilians, start to launch... Uh, spacecraft, craft into uh, space outside of Earth's orbit? As early as 1939. Because, it was that quick. Well, Schwabenland, the Schwabenland colony was founded in 38, and then they started sending submarines there uh, one after another after that, all during the war. All, while they were fighting the war, they were also, they were also building up the colony in Antarctica. And by the time the war was over, it was, it was a thriving colony. They were they were they were manufacturing flying saucers by 1946. Was the war itself? Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Now I also mentioned in the book that uh, Himmler took took over the Antarctic expedition after after Goring. They they got rid of Goring because he wasn't doing the job, and Himmler took over. That means it became an SS operation essentially. And uh, Himmler was very interested in sending a racially pure, creating a racially pure civilization in, in Antarctica. And so he, he uh, by that time they had captured or invaded Russia, and he rounded up 10,000 Aryan women, blonde, blue-eyed women, and sent them to Antarctica along with 2,500 of his fiercest fighting force, the Waffen-SS, and the purpose was to create a, a new master race in Antarctica. So they were already going down that road, and Himmler was more or less in charge of it while they were fighting World War II. And Albert Speer, his minister of armaments, knew nothing about that. He was kept in the dark. Was the war itself a distraction? Was it, was it a deliberate attempt to draw all eyes away from what they were doing in Antarctica? Well, you know, they had to go along with Hitler's uh, was Hitler's directions. Right. He was Hitler was a madman, basically. He was really crazy, mm-hmm. and he thought he could be a general and he could win a battle on two fronts. Even though, even though Napoleon couldn't do it and the Kaiser couldn't do it, he right. thought he could do it. Right. And he had no experience in naval in uh, military uh, tech, uh, uh, technology or military strategy, and he didn't even listen to his generals. He had some top generals. He had, yeah. he had some great generals. And uh, he just took, he decided that he was going to be Mr. General. And uh, when they realized he was crazy and they couldn't do anything with him, he was going to sit on top of his mountain there in the Austrian Alps and play around with his, with his girlfriend, Eva Braun, and, uh, yep. while, while they were burning uh, millions of people in, in, the, in the ovens down below. I mean, he was really crazy. Basically crazy. I mean, you talk about uh, the quality of his military commanders, and despite the fact that they uh, were were the basically instruments of some real terror, they were brilliant military commanders. You know, Heinz Guderian and uh, Erwin Rommel; these guys wrote the book on modern warfare. That's 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 right. They really did, especially Rommel and Guderian, uh, Guderian too. But he didn't realize what he had. And he decided he was smarter than they are. They were, uh, anyway. Uh, you know, his chief of staff was a man named Beck. And when Hitler invade, was was about to invade Poland, he 
he resigned because he saw he saw the handwriting on the wall. Yeah, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he was the smartest guy in the whole military operation there. But Hitler proceeded with his crazy plan anyway. Uh, I mean, really, when you think about it, he gave that speech declaring war on the United States only three days after after Pearl Harbor because he thought that the Japanese had so weakened us that he could take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he did that, he did it mainly to win over the, popu- the German population. He wanted them to think that he was that he was powerful enough to do that because he needed he needed their support. But the military people knew better. Yeah, he basically sealed his fate by doing that without any question. How did this uh, come to your attention? Because clearly, this stuff is not written about in the history books that I read when I was in school. Kibi, uh, uh, most of the. I, my my first book, Alien World Order, ended uh, without my getting into anything to do with with the solar system. Mm-hmm. And I realized later that I had stopped prematurely because there was a lot more to be discussed regarding the solar system. And uh, that's why I continued and wrote, wrote this book because uh, it, it wasn't enough. To, it wasn't enough to point out that the Nazis had taken over the American industry, which they did. And I did point that out in my in the first book. Uh, when Von Braun sat down at the desk of uh, the head of NASA, that was the ultimate. That was the ultimate point at which the Germans had taken over, uh, starting with Operation Paperclip. But I, I didn't realize that it had taken that they had taken it out into the solar system at that point, and so I knew I had to I had to write Dark Fleet. And basically, most of the information for Dark Fleet came from the super soldiers. I think you're probably aware of who the super soldiers were and what they were all about, right? Yep. But explain it to the audience. Well, there was there were men that were that were taken to the moon and Mars to fight alongside alongside the Nazis against the indigenous populations on the moon and Mars. Uh, there were two indigenous populations on Mars that the Germans had to contend with. They were the they were the insectoids and they were repto and they were reptoids. They called them reptoids. They were not actually reptilians. Uh, they actually they actually hated the real reptilians, and they fought against them and they prevailed. But they were they were indigenous and they had they had to be disposed of by the Germans when they when they started their Martian their um, Martian colony, and so uh, that had to be taken into account. And I had to get into all of that, and that information mainly came from the super soldiers. There were ten of them that I dealt with. The main one was Randy Kramer. The testimony of the super soldiers, they all supported each other, and they all agreed on, on the main points of the Moon and Mars operations. And so putting that all together, I realized uh, that it had, it had to be discussed. And then finally, when I found out about Solar Warden, by, by studying what, uh, what Michael Sala had to say and what Corey Good had to say, I just put it all together, and uh, it, came, it was very obvious to me that the whole story had to be told because it didn't end with my other book. And that's why I got into the, this book. Well, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's walk through the actual progression of this. 1939, the Nazis actually uh, launch into space from Antarctica. They... Um, they go to the moon first? Yes, they landed on the moon in 1942. And they set up a base and a colony there? Yes, they did. As soon as they landed on the moon, they started burrowing under the surface. Uh, and that's how, the, that's how the moon colony began. And now it's an 11-story building underground, a bell-shaped building, and it's called the Lunar Operations Command. That's but that was 1942. So they've been working on that for uh, how many years now? You know, oh, 50, 50 uh, years already. Um, 42, 60. We're almost 80 years, right? Getting close. Exactly. Yeah. That's so, become that's bec- that's become more of an interplanetary meeting place, really, sort of like the United Nations. Uh, that that's the way they run it. They they, they take they take uh, visiting uh, interplanetary guests on tours of the of the facility. That's that's like the UN. That's like the planetary UN, the uh, solar system UN. 
are they are they still there? Are, are they still on the moon? Oh yeah, yeah. The Dark Fleet, the um, the headquarters of the Dark Fleet is on the moon. I mean, clearly we're several generations on from those that originally landed there. Or or do they also have some longevity technology from the reptilians that allows some extended life? They do have that technology. They, they have do. amazing technology. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've heard of a man named Frank Chile. You should get him as a guest if you can, because I don't know how much longer he's going to be around. Okay. Uh, he, has, he has a tremendous amount of information. And uh, what he said in one of his lectures was... Uh, in his lecture to MUFON in Los Angeles, he said that the technology that the Nazis have on the moon and Mars is about a thousand years ahead of what we have here. Oh, wow. Okay. And most of that is in biotechnology, not so much in, in physical technology, although they have that too. But biotechnology, they can, they can, they can actually put a soul, take a soul out of a, one body and put it in another one. They're incredibly advanced on the moon and Mars. And these are these are technologies that we hear about kind of in a science fiction angle here on Earth right now. But you're saying they already exactly. have this technology, yeah? Exactly. And but for them, that's routine now. Plus, this uh, regeneration tank. Uh, you, you've probably read that part in my book, right? Yep. Where if if if, uh, if a soldier loses an arm or a leg, they can regenerate it in a matter of hours or maybe a couple of days. They can re they can just regrow the whole the whole limb or the whole organ in a regeneration tank. So think of that technology. He was looking, they was looking for the fountain of youth. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Wow. There it is. Wow. Um, so let's again, extend this a little further. So the, so the Nazis uh, get to the moon, 1942, they build a base, which is in still, still in use today, but they don't stop there. They, from there go to Mars. Is that next? Yes. Yeah, that was next. Exactly. And, and the first, they uh, conquered it. First, uh, the first expedition to Mars was 1945. Okay. And don't forget, 1945, at that point, von Braun was still in Germany. So he had no part in it. But he was aware of all of this. Yes, he was. I mean, yes, he, was, he in, was. He was instrumental in, in much of this. No, he really wasn't instrumental wasn't. in that early... No. Uh, he was involved. He may have been a consultant, but... Between 1945, when he first came to America in Operation Paperclip, and 1950, he was more or less a prisoner uh, in uh, New Mexico. Yeah. At Bliss, at, I'm sorry, in, in Texas, I think it was, at, in Fort Bliss in Texas, and he had to have an armed guard with him wherever he went. So he didn't have much mobility for those five years. But, it, but the, first, the first German um, expedition to Mars took place in 1945 from Antarctica. Oh, directly from Antarctica. Directly from Antarctica, right? They did have they did have a ice free uh, surface area where they could where they built launch facilities. So um, it was not that difficult to do, really. Is that base still that in was, operation? They call that base two eleven. Is two eleven is two eleven? Yeah, is two eleven still in operation? It's still in operation, but now it's an international. The Americans. And the Germans started working together uh -huh. there. The, the aerospace companies from America and Germany started working together in Antarctica because I, the American scientists realized that the Germans were going to the moon and Mars, and they had to work together. You know, so basically it became international eventually, and now it's more American than it is German. I mean, so The Germans have basically relocated to Mars. You know, we, we many of us have heard of this Antarctica Treaty, where it's it's supposed to be off limits to the international community. Is that the effort to keep it secret? Well, it's supposed to be international, just like the just like the uh, the UN. Really, mm -hmm. uh, they, people can start colonies in Antarctica, but they cannot annex any territory there. Right under the agreement, under the UN agreement. So, the they can they can have colonies under the ice, but they can't say it's part of Germany. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so as we progress, the, the World War II itself comes to an end. The Nazis are already on the moon; they're on Mars. Um, yet we uh, undergo uh, what we call Operation Paperclip, or what they called Operation Paperclip, where we round up a bunch of the top Nazi scientists and we basically bring them to the United States. I think 
one of the justifications for that was because we did not want them to fall in Soviet hands. Was this by design by the reptilians and the Nazis? Did, did, was this part of their plan to become um, integral in the U.S. Uh, space yes. program, the U.S. technology? Okay, why? What, what, were, they, what were they looking the, to do? In the very beginning, they realized that the United States, uh, the United States industrial capacity was so far beyond anything else, and they decided that, and I think probably the reptilians more or less advised them of this, that the best thing they could do was to take over our industry and our industrial and financial apparatus. And that's why they invaded Russia, not the United States, because they wanted to keep the United States intact until they took it over. So uh, they had some good friends here in our government. They had, they had Alan Dulles, and they had John Foster Dulles. John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower, and Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA. Now, uh, in 1953, now, Eisenhower was very naive when it came to political uh, problems, but these guys were veterans of, of politics in Washington, and they took over, pretty much took over the government. And so... Uh, there was some history between the Dulles brothers and Nazi Germany going all the way back to 1933. Those two brothers were lawyers in New York, working for one of the top New York law firms, and they were the ones that traveled to Cologne, Germany, to help the the, uh, the Kuhn-Lieb uh, uh, law firm finance Hitler's money that he needed to run for the chancellorship. Mm. They they were involved in that. Wow. So th- their connection with Hitler goes, goes all the way back to 1933. So you can be sure that when they started bringing over the paperclip people, Alan Dulles was very happy with that because he was basically a Nazi sympathizer right from the beginning. Wow. And so was his brother. Mm. And his brother was the Secretary of State. Werner, tell us a little more about Werner von Braun. Obviously, uh, a brilliant man, and in many ways, he's credited with being the uh, father of rocketry and that science. Was it really him? And, and tell us a little bit more about his personality. Well, you know, he was a, he was a Nazi. He was a colonel, and uh, he had no he had no compunctions about using Jewish and other slave labor to to create his rockets, and. Uh, he may have been squeamish about it. He may not have liked it, but he went along with it. And so, when he took over the when he took over the desk of the head of NASA, well, it was actually the head of the Marshall Space Flight Center. That was in 1960. He was the head of us. He was the head of our space program in 1960. Wow. Okay. Now, Eisenhower was uh, Kennedy had just become the president at that point. Yep. And so he had to deal with von Braun. Uh, and uh, by that time, uh, Hans Kammler, the, the Nazi general, the German general who had helped develop the, the Nazi flying saucers in Czechoslovakia, was already in Antarctica. So here we had Kammler in Antarctica developing uh, the, the Nazi flying saucer fleet, and we had von Braun as the head of our NASA, and the German, the German uh, scientists, even the worst Nazis, had their records cleaned, and they were working at for our top universities and our top aerospace companies. So they had basically taken over by 1960. And there's a great picture in your book of Kennedy walking with uh, Werner von Braun um, uh, next to a helicopter. Uh, Was Kennedy uh, unhappy with what was going on with these German scientists getting key leadership positions within uh, U.S. power circles? He was, but he couldn't deny the fact that uh, there were there were some very top scientific people there, and he, yeah. he knew that a lot of them were ex-Nazis, but uh, he was powerless really to do anything about it. And uh, but he did finally understand the situation, especially after the uh, the aborted invasion of Cuba. Right, and that's when he said to Dulles, he was going to break the CIA up into a thousand pieces because. He realized the situation at that point, and that's when he started the DIA, which became his version of the CIA. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, we all know what happened a little bit after that. Um, the U.S. space program itself. Now, Werner von Braun is the head of NASA in 1960, and uh, Kennedy comes in and he, he talks about putting a man on the moon. Was the U.S. space program another diversion in some fashion? I mean, obviously, if Werner von Braun knew that the Germans had already, or the Nazis anyway, had already gotten to the moon, what was the what was that all about? What was the U.S. space program's objective if basically the people designing it knew, well, it, knew it had already been done? Well, with von Braun at the head of it, he was perfectly positioned to keep us from going there. I see. And since he knew about the moon, lunar colony already, and he knew, knew about the uh, Mars colony, that was that was his primary role was to keep us from going up there. And so he had to, but he had to go along with Kennedy because Kennedy was president, and uh, so he helped him. But uh, he did not do it willingly. He did it to cooperate with Kennedy, and uh, by developing the Saturn V rock five rocket, which they needed for the heavy lifting. Uh, that made the difference, but they still, still, they were not, they were not going to put up with Kennedy any longer, and they had him assassinated. He was in the way. Yeah, he was in the way, and they got rid of him. Yeah, yeah, and his brother. Um, the the U.S. Uh, obviously had had the series of Apollo missions, and uh, the official reports are that uh, we did go to the moon. Um, is there reason to believe, and a lot of people do believe, that there's, you know, we're not being told the whole truth about that. Do you have any opinion on whether or not we actually went? And if we did go, did we know that there was a German base there at the time? Well, we found out when we got there. We did. Because, uh, because Neil, Neil Armstrong said so right over the intercom, which was picked up by all the, all the amateur radio enthusiasts here. He said, boy, they're sitting on the top of the crater looking right at us. And boy, these babies are huge. Wow. That was recorded, mm-hmm. that comment. And I put that in my book. So we found out quickly that they were there. So let's let's go back to the Nazi story here. They they have a colony on and a base on the moon. They um go to Mars, they basically conquer that planet. What happens next? What is their ultimate goal? And is it still uh is there still a fight going on? Well, their ultimate goal was they took over the solar system. Basically, uh, they, they did not actually they did not actually invade Venus. No, because they knew that they couldn't really conquer Venus mm-hmm. because there was some very strong opposition there. But they basically controlled the solar system from the Moon and Mars, and they set up very profitable uh, mining operations and slave trade. A very, very, very. Uh, a, a very profitable slave trade all over the all over the solar system and out into the galaxy because they were creating cyborgs in their laboratory on Mars and it was that was the basic information that I needed uh, I got that from uh, Ileana Kapolnik well she was far beyond a super soldier because she was on Mars for 50 years it took her there when she was uh, I think six years old because they knew she she was very, very uh, expert in language translations, and that she would eventually evolve into uh, a, a very important uh, language person on Mars, where they had a lot of bewildering uh, languages were being spoken by visitors from all over the galaxy and uh, all over the planet. So they wanted somebody like that, and so she worked there in, in their cybernetics laboratory which was part of what they called the ICC base on Mars. Uh, the ICC base is the intergalactic corporate conglomerate. And uh, there are a lot of American companies involved in that, by the way, uh, aerospace companies. It's not just German, but German is the official language on Mars. Wow. And so she worked there, and uh, she understood what was going on, and she found out that their main concern was was, was a, you could call it the manufacture of cyborgs because they were selling cyborgs all over the galaxy and it was very profitable and they were all being built at that Mars facility at the cybernetics laboratory there so it was her information that I, I used for that inform, for that particular part of the book 
So when you talk about still, you talk about slave still out there, by the way, you she can is. find information. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, you talk about a slave trade. Now, is the slave trade the cyborg trade, or is are we talking about human slaves, or are we talking about the indigenous people of maybe Mars or the Moon being used as slaves? Well, you know, there's a lot of human slaves there, and a lot of the a lot of the abductees that were taken off this planet were taken off as slaves, and so I wrote a whole chapter on uh, on on um, Tony Rodriguez because you know many of the many of the abductees that, that they take they took off this planet they were used as soldiers and in military operations on Mars and the Moon but some of them they just took as slaves and he was one of them he uh, he he got them mad because he uh, he angered he angered the he angered one of the uh, the children of one of the Illuminati. Uh, high, higher up, higher ups, and so he was. He was abducted as a slave, and I used his experience to point out exactly how they treated the slaves. But they had many, many of the slaves are human. They're from this planet. Mm. Was uh, was Roswell um, a German craft? No, no, it was not a German craft. That was not. Was it uh, reptilian? I don't think so. No, that was from the from the Zeta Reticuli. System. Okay, yeah, um, we you know we don't seem to have a reptilian presence that we can easily point out right now. But are they in some way currently in league with the U.S. government or any other world government other than the Nazi, who basically have have left and are focused on Mars and and the Moon at this point? But do the reptilians still have a major presence here? Yes, they operate through the through the Illuminati. The they Illuminati do. Okay. run everything on this planet. That's what I was. That's, they the, yeah, they run the media. They run the banks. They run the medical systems. They run the uh, uh, drug companies. They're all they're all wealthy because the reptilians make sure make that sure. they are wealthy. Yeah. So then, I guess my question was going to be um, why. Uh, if they're conquering the universe, why haven't they conquered Earth? But in fact, what you're saying is they already control Earth. They don't need to conquer Earth. Exactly. Exactly. We they keep us around like cattle on a cattle ranch because they do. You know, they do eat human beings. You know that, right? I I didn't know that, but now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sleep tonight because of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are a food source. Wow, that's not that's not very comforting at all. Um, there are there is a an ongoing space war, right? This is still an ongoing effort by the reptilians and the Nazis to to dominate the universe, or not necessarily the universe, but the solar system. Well, according to my information, my my uh, my research, the reptilians control twenty one star systems in this uh, in this section of the galaxy. Oh wow! And and they and they're all it's all done through slavery. Basically, slavery they op- is their main op- modus operandi, but they but they can they can run a slave colony without the people being aware of the fact that they're actually slaves, just just like what's going yeah just like what's going on here. We don't realize that we're slaves, do we? Right, right. Well, that's that's we the perfect setup, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is exactly because. But they're not giving us all the technologies that we would need to be free. It wouldn't, wouldn't allow us to have that, those technologies. So that's the, their way of keeping us as sla- enslaved. And basically, we are enslaved. We're all, we're all uh, working for them, basically, for the Illuminati. And David Icke, David Icke gets into that in great detail, and yeah. I think uh, his information is very, very good, I, think, I believe. His research is excellent. Yeah, I've had him on the program, too. He's, he is excellent, does a very good job. Um Let's talk about Mars for a second. We've uh, recently, you know, seen big news stories about our unmanned craft that are exploring Mars, sending back data. Is that a ruse, it, uh, or have we? Um, is is it part of the uh, reptilian cause? Are we being lied to? What's happening with that? They're not going to actually. We do have a colony on Mars. It was established in 1964. It was. It's a joint U.S. Russian. Uh, colony. Oh, okay. So we do have a presence on Mars, and they tolerate us there. And it is basically American, uh, but that's as far as we that's as far as we've gotten there. 
they're, they're, they're so powerful on Mars that it would take an all-out assault by the entire military on this planet to ever try and defeat them there. Um, they've already used nuclear weapons on Mars to wipe out the uh, reptoid, the, um, the insectoid population. And uh, they're tremendously powerful now, and they have technology that, that's so far ahead of ours, we can't, even, we can't even begin to get there. Yeah. Yeah, and we've talked about some of that as well. Why won't they share it with us? I mean, it seems like if, if, if we're to be a healthy slave population, it seems like some of those uh, biological technologies would come in handy. Well, it's because they're Nazis, basically, and we know what Nazis are all about. Yeah, we do. They're, they're, yeah, they're Nazis, and, uh, and they're bullies, and that's the way they are. It's in their DNA or something. I'm not sure. I spent, I spent the first part of the book getting into that subject because I thought it was necessary. And I, wanted, I had to talk about what they did in, um, in, in Africa, how they enslaved and, and created a genocide in Africa in order to make that point. As you, that, was, that was before World War One. Yeah, as you um, uh, you know, wrote this, researched it, wrote it, and released it, and you're and you're revealing this to a lot of people that may not have been aware of it otherwise. Have you been threatened at all? Anybody coming knocking on your door, maybe in a proverbial way, to say, "Hey, Len, stop talking about this." No, they haven't. Really, they haven't tried to do anything with me, and um, I don't care if they do or not. I'm, I mean, I have to do what I have to do. Sure. And uh, if they don't like it, they could let me know. But nobody has a, nobody has really complained so far. But you know, really, they don't have to. Uh, I'm small potatoes. I really am small potatoes. They have no reason to try and keep me from doing anything. Yeah, I suppose if all of us know the truth here, uh, there's not really any way we're going to stop anything. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, uh, it's all about it's all about technology now, and they have technology that is so far advanced. I mean, are you aware of uh, the uh, the computing power of the quantum computers? Yep. Did you read that part of my book? Yes. Uh, like I, I'm trying to remember the numbers, like a trillion um, <laughs> functions. Of, I know you're going to have to remind me, but I do. Rem- I do remember uh, how uh, the magnitude by which these quantum computers can can uh, work. Right. Exactly. And, and according to Ileana Kapolnik, they've had quantum computing on Mars and the Moon for uh, God, I don't know, fifty years now. Wow. And if you read the story about um, the chapter on um, about uh, Penny Bradley, I think it's chapter nine. I can't remember now. She had to wear a chip behind her ear, and then that 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 put her in tr- in touch with the quantum computer of the craft. And basically, she ran she ran the the craft just by thinking, just through her thoughts. That's the kind of technology they have. It's unbelievable. We have nothing, nothing like that yet. Yeah, I don't think we're really even close yet. I mean, as you said, there's what a thousand year uh, head start that they've got on some of this technology. Yes, but we do have we do have Solar Warden, and I did want to make that point in my book. Oh yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, obviously, um, it's it's a it's a U.S. Uh, military space military um, organization. Yeah, primarily the Navy. It's the Navy, not the Air Force, that has it. And uh, we do have spaceships that are a kilometer in length. We do have very, very large spacecraft, and uh, we are out into the galaxy already. And um, I make, I talked about that speech by Ben Rich. Are you familiar with that? Yep. You know what he said in 1989, right? Remind me. He said, he said, we we already we already can take ET home. Uh, anything you can imagine, we can already do. <laughs> we, can, we can now take ET home. He said, but it's locked up in a black in black program so tight that it would take an act of God to get it out. That's what he was referring to. Wow. That was in 1989. So we've come even a long way from then. Uh, so we were making we were we were we were building those spaceships. Uh, as early as early as the seventies and eighties, and we do have them. We do have them, and we're already out into the galaxy. But they, the Germans, the Nazis, still control this solar system, and we uh, we're in a subordinate role now. 
So it, it's it's the Solar Warden Space Armada. How how large is this armada? Is it hundreds of vessels or is it two? Do we know? Well, I made I talked about it in the book. I can't remember all the details, but uh, let's see. You know, Curry Good worked directly in the Solar Warden program. He says that the uh, Solar Warden fleet is divided into research and development subfleet and a military branch. And uh, as of 2005, there were eight ships, an equivalent to aircraft carriers, and 43 protectors, which are space planes. And one of them was lost recently to an accident in Mars orbit while it was attempting to resupply multinational colony within Mars. And uh, I made the point there that this base was established in 1964 by America and Soviet teamwork. Um, so it's a very large... The, the, the uh, Solar Warden is, has reached the point where it's actually quite a large and uh, very highly armed military fleet. And there are battles that are taking place in space... But we're not challenging them right now. We're not challenging them right now because they're so far ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. These um, the the um, Solar Warden Space Armada. These craft are large enough. Uh, you described uh, them as a uh, aircraft carrier uh, in space, basically. If they're if they're large enough. They must be visible by uh, amateur astronomers looking through a telescope, or are they cloaked in some fashion? The claim of a secret... I want to read to you what I said on page 186 in my book. The claim of a secret base on Mars was confirmed by a physicist named Henry Deakin, uh, who had worked at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. He spoke to Kerry Cassidy and Bill Ryan of Project Camelot in 2007. He said... Transport is by two means, stargates for personnel and small items and spacecraft for larger items of freight. This alternative fleet is codenamed Solar Warden. So it's, we, we, do know all about, we do know all about it, but the thing to keep in mind is that our military is tied in with the, with the German military, the so-called, the so-called um, MyLabs. Uh, and the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower tried to warn us about, we ba- we are basically tied into that, and that constitutes what we call the cabal. Yeah, and they're not really American in in terms of of, of honoring the um, in, of honoring their 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 vows of of, of the vows to the Constitution. Right. So this is where we are now. We're, we're really at the point now where we could begin to challenge them if we choose to, but we wouldn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. We're going to run out of time here, so let's, uh, let's talk about the cosmic web. Okay. With Frank Chile, who I discussed, who I mentioned a little earlier. Yep. It was he who said this in an interview with the MUFON I think it was with MUFON in Los Angeles. He said that uh, we, the technology is about a thousand years ahead of what we have. Their technology is about a thousand years ahead of what we have right now. Mm-hmm. He said that actually uh, they have the ability, the Nazis have the ability to travel to the center of the galaxy in 45 minutes. That's what we're talking about here. Wow. So the cosmic the cosmic web has to do with stargates, and Corey Good was the one who talked mainly gave us that gave us that information. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with what he said about that? Mm. Yeah, but remind the audience. Okay, so you know that he said there is a basically all all those stars are connected by what he called a cosmic web. Yep. And when, when what we call them on on Earth, we call them stargates, but they really what they really are are entrances to the cosmic web, and that all the stars are basically connected. And when they travel, travel through the cosmic web is instantaneous. It's going through a different dimension, really. It's not going through space any longer. It's going through time and space, which mm-hmm. are connected. And, 
and it constitutes a cosmic web. But in order to travel through the cosmic web, you have to know how to how to get into it and how to get out of it. And so he, that was one of his one of the things he was involved with uh, when he worked at, at the, uh, when he worked in Sol, on Solar Warden. But that means that that means that there isn't there really is no star too distant right. for us to reach. All we have to do is know how to go through the cosmic web. And uh, that means that the whole universe is basically very closely connected. That's right. Yeah, that changes. And that's an amazing. It's an amazing thing to contemplate, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it changes everything. It changes everything. Uh, and, and again, another thing I want to touch on before we run out of time here, because you mentioned dimensions. Now, when we talk about the reptilians, you 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 make the comparison to humans or what we know in our physical world. We are a three dimensional being. But the reptilians are in the fourth dimension? Yeah, they, they dwell, basically dwell in the fourth dimension. And David Icke talked about that, and James Bartley. A lot of people realize that. Uh, when we talk about the fourth dimension, we're really talking about what used to be called the astral, the astral realm. Mm-hmm. It's invisible to us, and, uh, but, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place that we go to when we die. And they have that advantage by dwelling, basically dwelling in the in the astral realm, and so that gives them that gives them a tremendous advantage over anything in the physical realm. And uh, what was the point I was trying to make on that? I'm trying to what was the question you asked again? Just it was uh, the differences between the the reptilians living in the fourth dimension versus us being a three dimensional being. Okay. Have you had any uh, contact with Alex Collier? Do you know who he is? I don't. Well, Collier said that human, the human race is much more advanced than the reptilians. They are fourth-dimensional creatures. Yes, they're at home in the fourth dimension. We are actually six-dimensional creatures. And they know that, and they are basically afraid of us. Really? Yes. We, we are, our bodies may be three-dimensional, but our souls, our spirits are six-dimensional. And so, uh, once we once we once we truly comprehend that, and uh, reach start reaching into the sixth dimension, uh, we we become really di- almost semi divine, and we have that we have that potential. And so, once that happens, then they'll know that the game is over. Mm-hmm. Once we re- once we expand our consciousness to that point, they no longer have any power over us at all, at all. So then it's very important to them to keep us enslaved and keep us ignorant of this. Keep us dumb and dumber, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's, and that's why they throw out all this, all the stuff that we see in the movies and on TV, because that's their goal is to keep us dumb and dumber. <laughs> Once we reach our true potential, they know that uh, the game's over. What's the long-term... Um, prognosis for all of this is is it is it that we this this the human race you know barring any great ascendancy to consciousness or greater consciousness that we just remain slaves to this and be, just remain pawns to the reptilians and the, the no. Nazis what the future the future of the human race is basically Star Trek that's that's what we will be in the future we will be the Star Trek generation really I don't know how many years it's going to take for us to get there. But we will get there. We will free the slaves, and we will we will assume the position that we're supposed to be that we are being that we've been created for by our friends in the galaxy. You know, the, we were created by the DNA from twelve different twelve different human races in this galaxy. That that's the so-called Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. and after that, they made twenty-two upgrades to our DNA. And basically, they're preparing us for our role in this galaxy, and we will get there. We will that we will become the Star Trek generation. And you say they. I don't know how long it will take. You, you say they. Are we talking about the reptilians slash Nazis? Or are we talking about another race? They will become. They will become inconsequential when we reach that point. Really. Okay, Len. Um, the work is is fascinating. It's very very interesting. Well well presented as well. The book is called Dark Fleet: The Secret Nazi Space Program and the Battle for the Solar System. But it goes well beyond that. It really um, offers a lot of great information and insight to who we are and why we are. 
What? Um, where can people get the books? And if they were to start with your work, should they start with this book, or do you recommend one of your other books to start with? Well, I think if they they should start with Alien World Order because that's where that's where it all starts okay. in that book. I did talk about Serpo, and I did talk about other things in my first book, but really, Alien World Order and Dark Fleet make a really uh, should be should be read together. Really, and the, my books are available from Amazon, uh, from all the all the bookstores, uh, Barnes and Noble, and Inner Traditions is a publisher. Um, but I think that uh, the, ordering it through Amazon would be the best way to do it. And I didn't give you my website, did I? Yet? No, not is yet. That... Please, please give that to us. Okay, it's in a primitive state right now, but it's, it's usable. It's called Alien Dash Secret History, and. Uh, I'm I'm still working on it, but it it's uh, it's accessible and it's usable. Okay, great. Um, what's next for you? you? Got another another project in mind? Are you watching and going to write about more of this? I'm juggling a few things in my mind, uh, JB. Uh, one of the things I'm really fascinated by right now is is how the Germans were able to to assassinate Kennedy because I know that the Nazis were involved in that, and I'm trying to make that connection uh, more obvious. Yeah. And I have enough material now to get to get going with it, but um, because he was in the way, and they had to get rid of him. And I, I want to make that. I'm trying to make that point if yeah. I can, and that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, that'd be terrific. Well, keep us informed. We'd love to talk about that with you um, as you're writing, or once once you uh, actually finish that project. That would be terrific. Len, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here tonight. Sorry about the rocky start with the technology, but that happens. <laughs> Please stay safe with everything that's going on in the world, going on in the world around us, and uh, we hope to have you back soon. Okay, JV, it's, pl- it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.